Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome autism mom and advocate, Natalie Cummings, to the podcast to talk with us about her experience parenting two children on the spectrum and how she's utilized ABA to give both her daughters the opportunity to learn, grow, and live their best lives. Natalie has fought throughout the past 13 years to get her daughter access to quality care and now helps others do the same through her work as a senior paralegal at the law office of Andrea Marcus. This is a law firm specializing in disability cases in Southern California. We're so excited to learn from Natalie's 10 plus years of experience. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Natalie, can can you give us a little bit of a background? I love to do this because it's about the personal side, the, the story, the adventure of all of this. Um, but tell us about your daughters. Where did their journeys begin? Yeah, sure. So my daughter, who is now in high school, um, we started noticing interesting things happening. She was our third child. Um, We were in our early 20s, me and my husband. And um, she would line up her toys um, in front of the TV. She was really particular about things in our house. If a picture frame got moved, she would move it back. So she was very um, kind of OCD, and we thought she was deaf, um, which I've later come to discover that's kind of common in the little ones. She didn't respond to her name. Um, she didn't respond to uh, gestures and things like that. But she would run in the room when her favorite, like, Mickey Mouse song came on. So we really we really weren't sure what was happening. Uh, we took her to the a hearing conservation, a hearing specialist, and they said her hearing's perfect. Um, so then uh, my friend, who's actually a special ed teacher, said, have you ever, like, thought about autism? And we didn't, we knew the word, but we didn't know what that was. So I Googled her symptoms, and autism popped up. And... Um, I took her to her pediatrician. This was when she was about two. And the pediatrician told me, like, she's fine. She seems to be, like, really attentive to her surroundings. um, She'll grow out of it. Like, you know, she's fine. She has older siblings, so she's used to people doing stuff for her, so she doesn't need to talk. Um, And I kind of got that spiel. About three months later, I went back and I said, you know, she's still not talking. Um, I really feel like this could be something. It could be autism. And she had Thomas the train with her, which should have been kind of a red (laughs) flag because she loved Thomas. And so she's playing with Thomas on the ground. And, you know, the pediatrician just kept saying, no, no, look, she's like playing. She's engaging. She's playing with her brother, who was only 16 months older than her. So they were kind of two peas in a pod and they did everything together. They were like Irish twins. (laughs) So uh, she was, you know, that's who she was. That was her person. That's who she was with all the time. And um, so that was the second time I took her. I took her again a month later, I think. And I was like, you know, there's really something wrong with this kid. 
and not wrong, but she's just so different. She's not talking. Um, and so she said, fine, if you're really concerned, go to Tri-Counties. And she gave me the pamphlet. And so I called Tri-Counties and left a message. And at that point, I was nine months pregnant with my fourth child. Oh. So um, as soon as I had my fourth child, who was my second daughter, um, Tri-Counties called me back, <laughs> like right after the hospital. And they said, you know what you've described, we really want to get her in and have her assessed. And so I did. Um, my daughter was probably a week old and my other daughter. And I started taking Ella to all of her assessments. And um, they at first were saying, you know, well, we don't want to diagnose her with autism because we don't want to put a label on her. Um, and so three people, I think, told me that. It was a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist. And then finally, and I think maybe Tri-County psychologist, a private psychologist saw her who was hired by Tri-Counties and said, for sure, she she's on the spectrum. Wow. Before she turned three. That is, I mean, the the way you describe that journey, Natalie, I'm just sitting here, I'm just thinking persistence, persistence, persistence. It's, so you start out the hearing specialist, then you get to a teacher who's giving you some feedback, and then you have to go and do this as a parent and go to the Google search. After right. the Google search, three visits to a pediatrician, get sent to the regional center where early, de uh, early development and um, kind of the... Uh, early specialist services are are provided in California are available to you. Still yeah. at that point, not getting the diagnosis, although you're as a parent, you're sitting there on the edge of your chair and be like, all right, so oh, come on, somebody help me. Somebody give me some knowledge here because I just want to move forward, right? Right, right. We just want to help her, give her the best life she can have. And um, she was probably too, my my so my other daughter was two or three weeks old when they started the early intervention and she Ella started ABA. So um my I had my tiny baby <laughs> and I had Ella um with her first therapist and it was a it was wild. I had never seen it. I didn't know what I we were doing. We had it was complete opposite, I think, of how you think you're supposed to parent, ignoring the bad behaviors. Um, withholding things until she says stuff, which sounds cruel, but she actually um, learned to talk that way. And um, we would avoid things because it was hard or we didn't want to take her to, to a, another, like a gymboree they had back then. And it was scary to take her there because she would have a tantrum or she couldn't wait in the lines. Mm -hmm. And um, our Scott Revlin, who was so instrumental, would go there with us and, um, like kind of our little backup, you know, like you can do this. And he'd go to these places with us and show us what to do and deal with the tantrums and basically work through it. And, um, yeah, so that was, you know, with her. And then we, went to take her to preschool because, you know, Tri-Counties transitions um, to the school. They give the school the information, the school district. 
And so the school psychologist came and met with us and said, you know, she's going to love it. Like she gets to ride the special ed bus and the kids love that. And, you know, trying to sell us on this special ed program. And um, that really didn't sit right with us. Uh, We felt like she should be included with everybody. Um, And so we said, you know, let's take a year with ABA because she's been making so much progress and she's been talking and she's really smart. She just wasn't very verbal. And so let's give her this year of growth with ABA and then we'll have her assessed by the school district. Now, so Natalie, um, I I, I just want to go back one step. So you went from an experience where you thought potentially your daughter was deaf, not able to communicate because she couldn't hear and, and didn't experience that communication via sound early. And now you're at a point where your daughter is talking, engaging with you. Tell me as a parent, how that process feels, because you had to put so much time and energy to be able to even find treatment. And if that treatment was, was delayed longer, it probably could have set you back further. If people kept saying, no, she'll be fine. You'd be in a hole as far as being able to play the catch-up game because undoubtedly your daughter had so many skills and she just didn't necessarily know how to use them yet. So how did that feel as a parent when you got that? And I don't, I'm guessing Scott Revlin was your, was your behavior analyst at the time, but as you worked through that, how did that feel? I mean, what's the experience like? Well, we, I mean, within the first month of, ABA, we started seeing changes in her. And we were young and very, you could mold us, I guess is a good word to say. Um, So we were just very, you know, we'll do whatever you say. We just want to help her. And um, being young parents, we were, it was easy for somebody to tell us what we were doing is not right. (laughs) Um, So we said, okay, you know, we'll do whatever you say. And so we really put our energy and and effort and heart and soul into it. And we did exactly what they told us to do. And once we started seeing the changes, we were totally on board. Like, you know, we, she, like you said, went from, we thought she was deaf. She, she wasn't talking to talking and, and playing with us and being able to be in a group at Jimbury. And so just seeing that change um, we were totally sold on ABA and we were totally on board with it. It sounds like that connection that you were able to make with your daughter at that point was enough of a payoff alone to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever going forward that I need to do That's because I it. now have this bond, this connection, which has blossomed. Not that it wasn't there beforehand, but now it's grown. Yeah. And right. that's so cool. It was, and it was so special to see her. Like she never called any of us names. Um, so she wouldn't say mom or, you know, her brother. And after, I'm not kidding you, it was like a month or two of ABA. She started, we all had names. <laughs> <laughs> um, she called her, Maddie, her sister, baby. So she, you know, it just totally, totally transformed her. And it was so like precious and heartwarming to see, you know, that this was inside of her all along. She just couldn't express it. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine with all that growth that you saw in your daughter is being able to delay the 
the special ed program and say, no, let me let me continue to see this step. Let me see this extra growth because right. I want her to be with her peers. I want her to be able to learn from everybody and not right. just from a subset of the population. Inclusion is about, you know, bringing the community together and all of us learning from each other's experiences. So right. how did that process go for you? Because it's tough. Not every state is offering these inclusive programs that California is right now, where you still probably battled to be able to get right. it. But yeah. <laughs> that was it wasn't a huge um weren't they weren't too all too pleased with us. I mean that's a story in and of itself. That would take me probably an hour to talk about the beginning steps of that. But just real long, really, really long story short, um she was, we had an IEP for her. She was assessed after the year. So she was almost four at this point. And um, they said, wow, you know, she's made so much growth. And and actually we did talk her up a lot in the IEP. <laughs> she's able to do all this even more new stuff since you assessed her a month ago. And so um, they said, okay, well, we'll put her in a program that's designed for like speech impaired children. Um, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. So we were just thrilled even to do that because the original offer was like full, you know, um, special ed with pretty low functioning children. And so this was just typical really children who had speech delays. So for us, it was like, wow, you know, we made a little bit of a step forward. And um, that's a whole other long story. We ended up pulling her out and she went to preschool. We funded it, um, a private preschool. Back then, insurance did not pay for ABA. So we funded that as well. Mm. And we said, you know, we think she can do this and we can prove to you she can. And so we funded the entire like first year. And um, she went to preschool for a year and they you know that was kind of like her stay put because in the IEP they said okay you know you can put her in the private preschool but you know we're, we're not funding this and that and which I'm sure as you know is not legal um <laughs> but we so we went along with it and we proved to them and at the, in the kindergarten stay put just means it's your last placement everybody agreed to and so her stay put was general ed. And since we had put her in the private preschool, and so they had to let her in um, to a general ed kindergarten. They didn't want to let the aid in because we were privately funding it. And they said, you know, you can't privately fund an aid on our campus. And we said, well, her stay put is this aid. So like, and it's a private aid. So what are you going to do? Um, the The private aid ended up coming with her to school they didn't kick her out but they also weren't funding it so we were kind of in a weird holding pattern mm -hmm. where we had this aid not getting funded by anybody um and her in this public school class so <laughs> natalie can you can you just walk me through this this process and it, it's because a lot of families out there and a lot of practitioners don't really understand how you immerse ABA into a school environment. Like it's it's the it shouldn't be a novelty, but sometimes it is. Is what did you see the role of ABA 
in helping or the the private aid, being able to help your daughter to be able to access all the wonderful things that the preschool is offering. And how did that enmesh? Well, first of all, I will say there was only one preschool that in the area that would allow this. Um, it was a preschool that had allowed other children with autism and their privately funded ABA therapists to go. So being, you know, the small kind of autism community, I had heard about them. So um, I called around us because this preschool wasn't very close and nobody would do it. Uh, nobody wanted the private ABA aid in the school. So I called this other preschool. They happened to be like one of the most expensive, <laughs> you know, um, but they said, yeah, like we would welcome her. So um, the ABA therapist would go and we'd work on kind of like home goals because she didn't really have any IEP goals at that point. Um, and they would stay with her all day. Um, I mean, ideally, they would step back and kind of let her do her thing and then step in if something happened or if she like didn't understand the turn taking rules or um, sitting like waiting in the circle time, those kind of things were hard for her back then. Mm -hmm. So free play was fine. She was happy and, you know, would go around kind of doing her thing and the therapist would really try to engage her with other kids. So it was really more of just like stepping back and then stepping in when they needed to. Yeah, and, and schools alone provide so much of that social development. And oftentimes for, for younger children who haven't developed those skills yet and maybe are having challenges to attach to those skills, is that not having somebody to help support, like you said, maybe being able to turn take or to even engage somebody to start that conversation or that friendship, um, it's got to be almost something that you can't get past. It's it's like a giant blockade that like, ah, how do I how do I battle that? But right. having your aid there and then being able to work on those goals outside of that environment, too, is probably something that I would imagine your treatment team alone were super excited to be able to have all that access to such a cool community environment. Right, right. And we had we also had funded the BCBA to come in once a week and check on the program. We had the same BCBA at home. So we were able to work on things that were she was having problems with in the school setting. We were able to to work on that at home. And um, it really did stutter up well for kindergarten when that started. Yeah, so. I, what you all did and and breaking down some of those silos, I think is so important. And I think that that's where uh, autism treatment in general should be going is that there shouldn't be silos is everybody should be working together, integrating all the plans. It should be one continuous process and not a broken process where everybody's doing different things. How did, how did you rely on your team to make sure those things were happening to make sure that, you know, in the school environment, that it was a team. It wasn't, hey, we're working on my daughter's treatment in school, but no, I'm helping her to access everything that the school offers as well and working with the school team. Did, did you see a, a bridge being created that needed to be there for it to be successful? 100%. Um, we were very, we were in contact. I was constantly in contact with the school, preschool, her teachers, um, the aid 
we would all talk together about things. Um, they would have meetings, almost like little report cards for the preschoolers and, you know, let me know how it was going and like her skill levels, but also social aspects, how it was going with the aid. They were always, and I'm sorry, I'm using like aid and therapist and things interchangeably. Um, <laughs> I mean, ABA therapist who was privately funded, just disclosure. Um, <laughs> but they would use, they were very happy to have the extra support. And if they didn't know what to do with her, they would ask her therapist, you know, how, how do we do this? How do we engage her in this? So it wasn't just, you know, oh, annoying that they had an extra person in the room. They really utilized this support and this accommodation that she needed. And, um, yeah, I was, I've always been very involved in her school program. And so just, you know, staying connected, it was important to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. so knowing and talking when I would drop her off and I would tell them, you know, she was having trouble this morning with this, you know, X, Y, Z. And then when I would pick her up, they would tell me, you know, this and this happened. Um, so it was never just like drop her off and bye, see you later. It was very like, I would even get texts during the day. I would get pictures. Um, so it was it was very, very much a group, group effort. It wasn't the ABA, the school, or me. It was a very huge group effort. Yeah, and what you did with your team there, I think, is something that needs to be applauded because as much as you can build that bridge and create that continuity of treatment, Undoubtedly, from the experience of other preschools not wanting to have treatment in their, it could be torn down just as quickly and okay. there could be a sour taste. So it's doing it right, which it sounds like your team did, that I think will continue to build. And I would imagine that preschool is more willing to continue the process because they saw, you know, this benefits everybody. This isn't just for one child. This benefits the entire classroom. And that's where things get to be. That's where you see growth. Right, definitely. And we've, I mean, I still have a little relationship with that preschool to this day. Um, we follow each other on social media, and they love hearing about the girls' progress and things that are happening. So, yeah, it, it was a great experience. And they continue to allow special needs children and their therapist. And thank goodness now it's funded by insurance and mm -hmm. <laughs> parents aren't having to deal with this because, God, that was, it was a lot of money. It was a lot of stress and a lot of lot of money to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it's sad that people would have to think whether or not they would put their investment in certain places because medical care wasn't being covered at that point. And I'm glad those things has changed as well. But so you went through that preschool process and, and you used that stay put year. It, it sounds like extremely well. Um, and we're able it, to get your daughter back into the school system. So yeah. how did how did things change at that point? Was was she able to start becoming part of the milieu? Was she part of that group? Was that uh, was it starting to kind of create the same bridges that you built in the other community? Yes, it was a much slower process. <laughs> um, they wanted her to go to the autism class. Um, when I say they, I mean administration um, of the school district and um, were really, really pressuring us to put her in an autism class. And that went on for her entire kindergarten year. Um, we, I volunteered at least once a week in the classroom. Um, the aide was taking 
great data. I mean, this poor aide freaking took data at like every minute what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we were able to kind of see like when there were problems, oh, you know, she was being, she had a tantrum when she came in from lunch, but then, you know, she had OT at lunch instead of being able to play on the playground. So we were able to kind of see like why behaviors were happening, thankfully for the data. And um, the teacher really liked her ABA therapist. We really liked her ABA therapist. In fact, Scott hired her specifically for Ella. Um, and she had come from a private school up north that it was just, um, I think it was in San Francisco, where it was a, like ABA school. Okay. And they had like the clickers and stuff to take the data. Um, so she, you know, was very accustomed to behaviors and anything that might have come up. Um, like I said, she took awesome data. And um, it took a year. It took a good year before really Ella became like a part of that campus um, because the autism school wasn't at that campus. So it was kind of always like one foot out the door with her, um, which was heartbreaking because my boys went there. Um, mm. So I wanted to, it was important for me to keep her there with them and um, in her neighborhood school. And so uh, they finally at the end of kindergarten, um, after she had had, you know, this wonderful therapist for a year, a teacher who had never had a child with autism in her classroom. So it was very new to her, but she was, had my boys. So she knew me and she knew like what we were about. And, um, that was very helpful. In fact, I specifically asked for her and I think they kind of were like, whatever, just <laughs> <laughs> so they gave Ella her because. I knew her and I, I thought, well, if anyone's going to kind of, you know, try, it's going to be her because she knows us. It's funny um, is that you're not the first person to say how important that relationship, personal relationship that you form with the teacher is yeah. in order to help them realize that you're there to support your child, but also to support the teacher's efforts with their child. Right, right. And, you know, to just know you can contact me at any time. Um, I'm here. I volunteer. She knew that because I did with my son. Um, so, you know, I'll do whatever I can. And um, yeah, so then after the year, um, we went into this IEP thinking, okay, this, they're going to try to kick her out again. Here we go. Uh. Um, and I mean, it was, I almost cried in the IEP because everyone was there. The special ed director, we had private people like a speech pathologist and we had brought kind of our own team and they said you know we went to go look at the autism class again with the lens of you know thinking about Ella and there's no way she belongs there this is where she belongs um so we're going to offer you her private therapist as to stay we're going to fund it um we think everything should stay as it is she's made so much progress. We can't imagine sending her to a different campus. Like she's become a part of us. And I just like, I stopped and I almost cried. I remember I put my head down and I was like, oh my God, like it's over. Cause I been <laughs> fighting and fighting for years um, or a couple years at that point. I mean this, you know, my journey is very long. So it definitely wasn't the end, 
but it was like, oh my God, like she did it. In my mind, it was, she did it. She proved to them she could do it. Oh, good for her. I mean, and and not that she should have to prove herself that way, but for her to be able to demonstrate that she's so capable, I, it's setting a model of, you know, there's so many kids out there that could do the same thing. And it starts to build the trust and it starts to open up more doors, which yeah. is uh, what you really want is I, you want your daughter to succeed. But every time your daughter succeeds, it allows somebody else to start to kind of open their mind a little bit more. So your adventure through, uh, I guess, the elementary ed and and I would think now is it junior high high school high school even oh my goodness so what are the hurdles that happened during that time that differed because I mean when you're going early intervention it's intensive care all the time and when you did the integration into school is that you were able to slowly probably move back some supports and really empower her to be independent in all those environments that's got to continue through junior high, through high school. So what are the hurdles that you hit during those those growth periods? Um, she was in third grade when we finally said, you know, okay, just she was having a lot of behaviors and we felt like there was a lot of pressure on her. Um, so we said, let's have her go in a resource room to do like some of the work. So not like fully in a special ed class, but, you know, give her some one-on-one time and like a small group. Um, So she did that in third grade. And that actually lasted till she did that in middle school as well. She'd always have one resource class. Um, But it was always that was always the go to always even in middle school, if she would have behaviors, why don't you go look at the autism class was kind of always the response. And I did. I would, you know, okay, let me go check it out. And no, no way. <laughs> when I would see it, not that it was bad, but Ella was um, had been in Gen Ed for all these years, and um, actually, the noise and things of the special ed classes seemed to be more bothersome than helpful. <laughs> so um, it's kind of funny in my mind that that's okay for special ed classes, but it's not okay for gen ed. You can't make any noise. Don't disturb the gen ed classes, but these children who are super sensitive to sound and noise, and they can be subjected to it all day. Yeah, I would also imagine is that the friends that your daughter uh, Ella had made during the time in gen ed is that these friends are now her support network. And they're there to support her during class. They're there to support her outside of class during free time. That that they're the emotional support. They're friends. <laughs> and and that's that's the part for me where it's like, you know, you have somebody who's able to do this, who's able to engage, who's loving the world around them. Right. Why start to condense it again would be the big question. Right. Right. Why is that always the go-to? Um In fact, when she started, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but when she started um, middle school, she, I said, in the IEP team, we all thought it would be awesome for her to do choir. She loved singing and she did like a little performance thing after elementary school that she adored. That was like her, her jam. So we had her do a choir elective and then one special ed English class because English was hard for her. Um, 
and that actually she was diagnosed with a specific learning disability in fourth grade, I think it was. So she had unusual um, processing time and it wasn't attributed to her autism. It was just attributed to a learning disability. So um, she did have a slow, really slow processing. So reading, keeping up with the reading was hard. So she did a resource um, class for English. And um, when we got to her first day, or I, I think I checked her schedule early in the morning that day so she would know ahead of time. And I saw she had two English classes and no elective. And, you know, I'm like, wait, what's going on? This is a mistake. The principal is super nice about it. Um, but I just got a lot of red tape from the special department saying, no, like you can't have an elective. She needs to have these two special ed classes because that's the way the program is. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's another long story short. She ended up getting the elective and the one class (laughs) and the elective was so important. Like I can't even emphasize this. Her teacher was so awesome so accepting. She had my son for, my son played guitar in, in their um, orchestra and she had him for three years. So she knew us really well. And so when she got Ella, um, she was so accepting and like so ready. And that's where Ella made all of her friends and connections. And um, she, she did choir for three years (laughs) And ended up doing like a teacher assistant thing at her third year, which was during COVID actually. Um, but it was like the class, like that yeah. was her her jam. You know, that's what made school fun for her. Mm-hmm. That's funny yeah. what passion does for everybody, and it sounds like for Ella as well. It's like that passion alone probably brought out the best in her. Yeah. Um, and, and that's in her social and in per- performance and probably even engaging with the teacher. If she became a teacher's assistant, undoubtedly she was doing a wonderful job of that too. Yes, yes. She loved the teacher. She was um, really comfortable with the group. Uh, and when you're in a class, I mean, really, you don't socialize a lot unless there's the group activity. So there's not a lot of opportunities um, for her to socialize in the middle of a class. And that was kind of a more unstructured like chat. And so that was like really cool to see. So listening to your journey, Natalie, and I mean, it's a I don't want to go back to the whole thing again, but I kind of do. I mean, you fought (laughs) to be able to get just some knowledge about your daughter when she was young and you didn't accept the first thing, you kept on questioning and saying, you know, I need to know more. I need to get there. And, And you worked through that process. Right. Then you were able to find treatment. Then you were able to advocate for inclusion and then take a step away to say, I need to find a better placement. They get back into inclusion. And now your daughter is really independent and working through it. What I'd love to be able to do is this is an amazing journey. I'd love to get deeper into all the advocacy that happened to that and how you got there. And maybe that's for a different show. But I do want to hear because... The work that you did to be able to empower your daughter required a lot of persistence, a lot of perseverance, and it required a team. And I want to know how that process worked for you over time so that others can benefit from the experience and the journey that you went through. Um, I appreciate everything that you shared with us today because that is amazing. I mean, hearing where Ella started to where she is now, I mean, who would have thought that 
the, the daughter that you thought was possibly deaf is now a choral star. But right. <laughs> it's one exactly. of those things where it's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. And in high school, like she's flourishing. She loves it. Um, she's super into spirit days and has made friends. We, for her birthday, we took her and a friend she made to Universal. Um, I mean, it's just been, it's two different kids really in my mind. Um, but she's, she was always in there. She just didn't have the tools, um, to get it out. And now she can. And, it's really precious to see her conversing with people and making friends and just everything we had hope for her. And she's in fully in gen ed in high school. She doesn't have any resource classes. Um, when they did her testing, she was right there at grade level. So when they moved her to high school, they said, you know, she doesn't need resource classes. Like she's right there where our students are. So she was able to just transition into full inclusion. That's amazing. And and it sounds like through the, the treatment that you all committed to and through the team that you all built around Ella is that you didn't change Ella. You gave Ella the best chance to be able to do what she wanted to do. Okay. And that's the best part about the whole thing is that you really empowered her through the process. And right. that's amazing. Right. Yeah, I mean, and she's so vocal now. She'll say um, to therapists, because she still has um, a couple days a week, she has a therapist come, and she has the therapist at school still, which, by the way, all the teachers love the therapist. Um, They're, like, really a part of the group. Uh, They're not just "Ah," right on top of (laughs) Ella. Um, They're not over her. In fact, I had her... um, a uh, case manager comment to me, wow, this aid is awesome. They're, you know, they're in the back of the class. They step in if there's anything, but for the most part, they're just like super supportive. And like Ella knows she can go to them with anything. If the teacher doesn't respond right away. She'll ask the aide, but she knows to ask the teacher first. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible, but God, I'm, I'm talking now and I totally forgot where this trail was going. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, no worries. Um, so, I mean, Natalie, I all that you've learned, all that you've been a part of, and all that you've advocated for for Ella has had such a, a profound impact. But what would your advice be to other families who are, are venturing down the same path and maybe um, don't know where to turn or maybe didn't have the, the guidance that maybe you were able to get from others um, or that you were persistent about finding? Um, what's, what's the advice that you give to them? Definitely don't give up. Um, and, uh, usually my first instinct was right. (laughs) Um, you know, I really believe that children with ASD are so, so capable. Don't put limits on anything. You know, the sky's the limit. Um, I think just remaining, involved and um, making sure you're in constant communication with everybody, the the ABA team, the speech therapist, the school team, making team meetings for everyone to meet up, even if it's not an IEP, just checking in and seeing how things are going. Um, it's really important to be involved. Um, Absolutely. I think that would be my biggest piece, just 
stay the course, be involved. And if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And it, it sounds like it's working for you. <laughs> but <laughs> with, the, with the beginning of the new year, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So I'm looking at this new year and I'm looking and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that I'd love to see happen for the autism community and or maybe the autism provider community over this over this next year to really make things click? And two of the things that immediately come to my mind are we need to find that passion and those that aid that you described, who was out there and makes such a profound difference in the lives of everybody who they're touching. It's we need to be able to put that and highlight those people, get them into more and more positions so that they can continue to build careers because those are the that's the valuable component to any organization out there are those powerful providers, those behavior technicians or aides who are out there on a day-to-day basis going through the ups and downs to be able to implement the plan and work with the family who's going through the same struggles so that they can be able to form that team. The other thing that I'd love to be able to see is more commitment to the adolescent and adult community. I think that there was so much advocacy for young early intervention, which there should be, because that's where you make the biggest steps. And I think Ella went through that, but it shouldn't end. And I'd love to see that. And it looks like you're experiencing that, but what are your wishes for the autism community over the next year? Well, I really think like what you touched on, that's really near and dear to my heart now that Ella's aging, um, now that she's in high school. You know, it's harder to get funding through insurance. Um, it's it's just, it's sad because I don't think there's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm definitely not an expert in this, but I think there's not a lot of research. Um, so the insurance is kind of, eh, we're not doing that. But, you know, I don't necessarily see ABA as getting rid of maladaptive behaviors. It's teaching adaptive behaviors. And now that she doesn't have a lot of maladaptive behaviors, we're trying to teach her how to function and be an adult, how to go to the store, how to make her meals, how to, you know, be safe and and know what to do in an emergency. And those are all adaptive skills she needs to learn. So, yeah, I think having a huge emphasis on this, like, teen community um, would be awesome for the new year, as well as, I think, having this school be very schools in general being very open to having ABA um having good ABA in the school not just you know a crash course over a day but actually having trained behavior technicians in classrooms having more BCBAs on staff um I think that would be really important they're really stretched thin I know our school district in particular has one BCBA on staff there's no way that BCBA could supervise all these children. Um, so just having even one at every campus, like a school psych, that would be like my dream. Yeah, and maybe maybe as a community of advocates and professionals and families is that we can tackle some of these challenges. Um, and I, I, I'd just like to point out, I love the way that you looked at the adaptive behavior, is that all of our quality of life improves the more that we get independent and the more competence we build at different skills. 
And that's right. that's uh, me, you, your daughter. I and mean, it's all of us. It's like we that's how our quality of life continues to evolve is that we are we're able to continue to grow. So right. the fact that you're focusing on those adaptive behaviors is something we all should probably take a look at. But Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. I always feel like I learned so much through the process. And I do hope to get you back on because you you are part of that advocacy community. And I'd, I'd love to hear how we can continue to empower families to get what is appropriate for them and appropriate for their children. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel kind of bad because I didn't even touch on Maddie's story. <laughs> <laughs> and there's two of them, but there's just so much over, you know, over a decade of children. Um, yeah, Maddie's a whole other story. For a uh, that's, a, that's another reason to have you back on, Natalie. We need to hear about Maddie as well. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, a, you know, a huge fan of ABA and ABA Done Right. And I, I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.